0: I could listen to those three girls and Sasha sing for a long time. Did you enjoy that? Beautiful music. And uh we might have to get you guys just to sing that song again for us after the program so we can get it on those cameras, I think. That's if you're here. That was fantastic and I'm glad to welcome you back this afternoon. Glad you made the effort. There's so many people coming out to these programs. Feel so blessed that the Lord's bringing you here. And I'm sure that this afternoon, as we look at this topic, that, that, well I'm praying that you will leave this place drawn strangely to, to Jesus Christ, the Saviour and the Master. This is a delicate, a delicate topic. And I think of all the programs through the years that I have preached and shared with people, this would be one of the more delicate ones. And I have endeavoured my best to get my facts right and to ensure that I present this in the spirit of the love of Jesus Christ whom I serve. And so I trust you'll enjoy it, that will give you something to think about, and that you'll leave, uh, as I said, being drawn closer to Jesus. Now, before we go on any further, I don't have the uh the thing on the front here. Brendan? How do I get that on? The the, the monitor's not on. Probably put the power on and turn it on might help (laughs) Oh I love technical stuff There we go, praise the Lord Okay, I think the Lord must have just allowed that uh, little bit of time To allow these extra people we have come into the church So there's a reason for everything isn't there Let's bow our heads and we'll ask the Lord to be with us and we'll get straight into this topic. Jesus, we're living in a troubled world. There are many things that cause us to fear. We hesitate when we look at the future. And yet Jesus, as we study these topics, we know that you are in charge, that you do care for the people of this world, all of them, and that you do love them deeply, regardless of race, Religion or creed And may we leave this place Lord Experiencing that love through you We pray in your name, Amen Israel, Islam and America Or Israel, America and Islam If, if I could retitle this I probably would retitle it Israel and the Palestinians I was born a Seventh Day Adventist Christian and so this little nation of Israel that you see on the map up behind you has had a deep impact on me as a person all of my life. I grew up hearing stories of Israelites, Israelite heroes and I remember stories of of, of kings like David And how he fought the giant Goliath and was victorious I remember stories of the Prophet Samuel of Daniel That great Jewish young Person taken captive To Babylon who stood for God No matter what the cost And so Israel And Israelites Since the day I was born And let me tell you next week that's 42 years ago Long time, isn't it? Since the day I was born, this little nation of Israel has meant something deep to me. I have, I have had a, a, an affinity toward Israel because Israel and Israelites are primarily the people that the Bible talks about. It is only a small nation. You may or may not realise that there are probably only somewhere in the vicinity of three million citizens living inside the borders of Israel. And yet Israel has a disproportionate influence on what it does and what it says and what happens for a tiny little country. And it seems to me that at at most times almost the entire world is looking at Israel and what is happening in Israel. I don't know whether you realize, but there have been four wars against the Arabs. In recent times by the modern state of Israel. In fact, if you want to count Lebanon in 1982, five wars, but four wars. And I was interested. This was a surprise to me. As I studied the history of this little nation, I found that two of these wars were defensive wars. In other, way, in other words, Israel, the modern state of Israel, was attacked by the greater Arab nations and defended herself. And those wars were 1948 and 1973. What I did not realise was that in 1956 and in 1967, Israel actually fought offensive wars. In other words, they went to war against their neighbours. And so there were two defensive and two offensive. And as I studied the history of this little nation, I found that Israel won all four Wars, And you could say as you study the history, depends I guess whether you're looking at it from the Arab point of view or from the Israeli point of view, you could say that they not only did they just win them, they won them decisively. And I've often thought to myself, if I was to go to war, can't do that, I'm a a Christian, I actually don't believe in war. But if I was to go to war, I think the Israelis may be the last people on earth I'd like to go to war against because they certainly are fearsome warriors and very fierce fighters, is an accepted fact today that Israel, the modern state of Israel, has tactical nuclear weapons. In fact, it seems that, and I'm not absolutely sure on this, and I'm not sure anybody's absolutely sure on this, but it seems that Israel could be the only state in the immediate area of the Middle East that does, although they don't acknowledge it, does have Tactical nuclear weapons So that gives Israel quite an advantage on her neighbours You know as I prepared for this subject For this topic I was surprised to find out that much of Christianity Believes that Israel has a prominent part to play In the future of the world Did you know that? Much of Christianity And particularly Western Christianity believes that the modern State of Israel has a prominent part to play in the future of the world. And this is one reason that Israel can can garner such strong support from countries like the United States of America. And as I further investigated this, I found that some of the some of the, the most powerful, influential religious leaders in the United States of America support Israel, and not only do they support Israel, they support Israel very strongly, and they attempt to support Israel from a theological perspective. In other words, they're saying, hey, we support Israel because the Bible supports Israel, because God tells us to support Israel. And you've got three prominent, very prominent, Evangelical, Protestant Christian leaders there up on the screen Jerry Falwell, Pat Robinson and James Dobson Arguably the most prominent preachers in America All support the state of Israel from a biblical perspective I thought that was interesting Very interesting In fact I want to tell you that as I looked at this Most Protestant Christians Most Protestant Christians in the United States of America, and I want to tell you that most Protestant Christians in Australia would call themselves, it's a big word, dispensationalists. You may not know what that means and so I thought I may share with you this afternoon for a few moments what a dispensationalist is. It's important because it's dispensationalists. It's the Western Christian church today that gives stronger support to Israel as a secular state than any other group of people. And they're called dispensationalists. Let's find out just for a few moments what they believe. And by the way, I'm not a dispensationalist. I'm a Bible-believing Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Let's find out, though, what a dispensationalist believes. They believe that both the church, that's those who worship God, And Israel, that's secular Israel, are counted as the people of God. Now, right from the start, I have a problem there. Because as I read the Bible, the people of God are those who accept Jesus as their Saviour. Now, whether it's the secular state of Israel or any other secular state, in the world, I don't know any secular state that says, hey, we, 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 we accept Jesus Christ officially as a state, as our Messiah and our Saviour. In fact, let me tell you something about Israel. They don't accept Jesus as the Messiah. And yet evangelical dispensationalist Christians consider That both the secular, it's important that you understand, the secular state of Israel and the church today in 2005 are called the people of God. They also believe that all the promises of the Bible concerning ancient Israel must be taken literally. You'll see in a moment why that is important. Thirdly, listen to this. I found this so interesting. Dispensationalist Protestant Christians believe that Jesus will come back to earth and set up a literal kingdom in Israel. Fifthly, many. Fourthly, sorry, many American Christians believe that the United States has a responsibility to protect and nurture Israel. And you better believe this has an impact on the leaders of the United States of America. Have you in recent times been watching the New Orleans hurricane, Hurricane Katrina? And what it's done to certain areas of the United States, it's devastated New Orleans and the surrounds. There are Protestant evangelical Christian preachers. I have heard them this week on my pay—on not my pay—it's my satellite television at home—and they are getting up the front, in front of thousands and thousands of people in their congregations, and they are preaching that God has brought the wrath, His wrath, upon the United States of America because the United States of America pressured. Israel to withdraw from Gaza. They see a direct link between Hurricane Katrina. They are preaching it on television. They are preaching it before thousands of people that because the United States encouraged Israel to withdraw from Gaza, that God sent his wrath, that God sent his punishment down upon the United States in the form of that terrible hurricane. So many American Christians believe that the United States has a God-given responsibility to protect Israel. Nextly, and this is all important, dispensationalist Protestant Christians believe that Jesus, look at this, Jesus' second coming can only occur when Israel is one United State occupying its ancient boundaries. Now, I want to tell you that their ancient boundaries were a lot bigger and a lot wider than they presently are. In fact, they, their ancient boundaries would, would, would take in Egyptian, Syrian and Lebanese territory. And these dispensationalist Christians believe that Jesus' second coming can only occur when Israel is one united state occupying the ancient boundaries. Now the problem with all of this, of course, is that dispensationalism is not biblical. I'm a man of the word. I've been studying the Bible for 17 years religiously, looking for Jesus Christ in its pages. And you know something, I found him. But what I did not find ever from Genesis to Revelation was dispensationalist theology. You stay with us in this series in the next few weeks. I'll go further and prove what I'm saying. But for time today, I just want to tell you that very clearly, and I'll show you in a minute, uh, even in this program, that dispensationalism is not biblical. There is no basis for dispensationalist theology in a Christian's life. It's made up. It's fairy tale. It's pie in the sky stuff. Now, remember, I'm speaking to you from the front this morning as an avid, and I can't help it, Supporter of ancient Israel. I'm not so sure about modern. But ancient Israel. I, I grew up admiring the heroes of ancient Israel. And so I have these leanings towards Israel. But I cannot, I cannot invent theology to support my desire to see modern Israel succeed. I cannot invent theology and make out it's in the Bible when it's not. These dispensationalists are supported by some powerful people. I don't know whether you've ever heard of these two guys, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. They wrote the left behind series of books. Now you may or may not have heard about them. But they're all about this dispensationalist theology, this idea that ancient Israel must secure its borders before Jesus can come. Because course, the great danger of that is a dispensationalist will say the only way Israel can secure its borders is to invade its neighbours and to enlarge them to where they should be. And these men wrote a series of seven books. I think there's two films now. they have taken the world by storm. Their books have reached number one on the Amazon hit list three years in a row. It's not just Christians who are buying their books. It's millions and millions of ordinary people. And of course, as you read these books, it has an impact on what you believe and how you see Israel in the scheme of things in world history today. I would consider, as I look at these two guys, in American Christianity, these two men are on the far far right. They're they're somewhat extreme. But you know something? This man is a great hero of mine, Billy Graham. Billy Graham has had an impact on my life and my relationship with Jesus Christ. remember watching a Billy Graham sermon some years ago. And such an impact it had on me that it was a part of me turning from my dark ways to Christ. And yet Billy Graham is a dispensationalist. He believes what we've just looked at. And he promotes it and he's arguably the most powerful, influential preacher in the history of America in the 20th century. Very old man now. In fact, I don't know whether you realise this, but President George Bush openly states that it was Billy Graham that brought him to Jesus. Polls in the United States show, look at this, that one in six Americans is a dispensationalist. Now that might not mean much to you, except look at the fact that one in six Americans, you're looking at 50 million people in America, are dispensationalists. Believe what we have just looked at. One in three Republicans... I wish I knew how many people that was. I don't have the figures on how many people are in the Republican Party. But they are, in fact, dispensationalists. And I believe, and I don't want to go too far politically tonight, because I'm going to get into the Bible in a moment, that it could be argued, perhaps with some success, that dispensationalists have had an enormous impact on American history. Israeli relations, especially under President George Bush. And I believe that. i read it in Time magazine. Right through the the, the um, research I was doing for this, this presentation, I came across it time after time after time, the impact, the influence that dispensationalist theology has had on American foreign policy. And you've got to recognise if the most powerful country in the world is supporting you is supporting greater dreams of some for Israel, then I believe you have a very dangerous, volatile mix and a very dangerous, volatile part of the world. Of course, this has all had an impact on the Palestinians, those who share Israel with the Israelis. And uh, you don't have to be an avid news watcher to have seen at some stage or another Palestinian protests against Israeli occupation. And I'm not speaking for or against it this afternoon. I'm just looking at facts. In fact, it's gone further than just the Palestinians because this fight for Palestinian autonomy, for Palestinian independence from what they perceive to be Israel occupation and rule has gone beyond the borders of Palestine and Israel into the entire Arab world. And the entire Arab world as one, it seems to me, has risen up in rebellion against the concept of Israel as a secular state, even in its present form. And so you can see what would happen if Israel was to try and open her borders out further by force. The whole area would go up in smoke as a result of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And I'm not here to, this afternoon, let me tell you, to say that either the Israelis or the Palestinians are right. I think they both have legitimate claims. And I think that what's going over there, on over there, the blood that's being spilled, the innocents that are being killed, is an absolute tragedy. And perhaps better evidence of the rule of Satan in this world than just about any other area in the world. An absolute tragedy. And I wish that somehow we could get them in both groups and bang their heads together and say, treat each other with gentleness, civility and kindness and you can live in peace. So I'm not here to argue for or against the Palestinians or the Israelis. But you can't deny that the Palestinians, powerless as they seem to feel, have resorted to some pretty horrible tactics. And we all know about the suicide bombers and the carnage and the fear that they have brought to Israel. And every time I hear about a suicide bomber, my heart goes out to the innocent, both Israelis and Arabs, Christian and Muslim alike. They're all dying over there. Those bombs don't decipher that you are either a Christian or a Muslim or a Hebrew. They just blow you up anyway. And it's a, it's a tragedy, but, but this is how they fight back. And of course, Israel has then responded to the suicide bombers by building a partition barrier between themselves and these terrorists. And so you have now in Israel villages and towns and families and people being being separated by a partition barrier. Now, I'm not here again, don't get me wrong. I'm not here this afternoon to say the partition barrier is right or wrong. This is just the reality of what's happening on the ground over there. The Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Some would say a conflict between Islam and the West. Some go even further and say a conflict between Islam and Christianity has spread far and wide, far beyond the borders of Israel and Palestine. And we think about the terrorist attacks that we in the West are now suffering. New York, 2001, 9-11. Who can ever forget that day? Came home late from a Bible study, turned the television on, had watched the entire news on Channel 10. It would have been 11.30 at night. And just as the news was signing off, the news reporter said a small plane has smashed into the side of the World Trade Center. Now, I wasn't surprised because when I was in New York, I'd seen these planes and these helicopters buzzing the World Trade Center all the time. And we went to a set of ads and we were supposed to go to sports tonight, which I was waiting to watch. And we went back to the television news and it showed a picture of a gaping hole in a building. And even in my ignorance, I said, that looks a lot bigger than a Cessna to me. And then live on TV, all night, I watched that tragedy unfold. And then we had the Bali bombings. It impacted Australia. Almost 100 Australian people, innocent young people killed by terrorists. And of course, just recently, we've had the London bombings. And I remember the fear that we had, having my wife's sister living in London, trying to ring him on his mobile and not being able to go. Fear, dread. We were scared, we were afraid for Darren over there in London. All these atrocities are committed by young men in the name of Allah and Islam. And I found it interesting, and this is almost a direct quote from Time magazine, that Arab Muslim states around the world consider that much of the problems that the West faces with terrorism are a direct result of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, not Iraq. If this is true, then the Palestinian-Israeli conflict has a direct impact on us as we sit in this church here in Australia. Who of us have not experienced some reticence at some time or another of getting onto a crowded train or attending a sold-out football match, or sitting down in a packed-out concert in the opera house. Maybe I fear more than I should. But every time I get on the train, call me fanatical, scared, I go and sit in the back carriage. Why? Because if there's an accident or a terrorist attack, they usually strike in the middle of the carriages. When I go to a football match, I don't go to football matches anymore, not just the terrorist threat. The last time I went to a state of origin football match three or four years ago, uh huh, I'm thinking into my head what a great target this would be. And I think it's, I think it's in the heads of a lot of Australians and in their hearts. They, they, they are afraid. And this afternoon, and it won't be for long, We want to look at what the Bible has to say about this is an ancient conflict and its impact on the future of our world. And to understand this ancient conflict, we have to allow the Bible to share with us where it started, how it started and how it will end. So I want to look for a few moments now at where this conflict started. There was an old patriarch, a man of God. His name was Abraham. Abraham. I'll tell you right at the beginning of this little Bible study now that Abraham is the father of the Israelites, of the Israelis, of the Jews. Every Jew who walks on the face of the earth today has running through his or her veins the blood of Abraham. He was the father of the Jews and he was also the father of the Arabs. In fact, the Jews and the Arabs are blood brothers Look at this, Genesis, and I want to show you that, but also I want to show you, before we even go there, how God made some pretty specific strong promises to Abraham, the father of the Jews and the Arabs. Look what, look what God says in Genesis chapter 12 verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, or Abraham, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. So God comes down to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I don't want you to live in Ur any longer. Get out. I'm going to show you where to go. And so Abraham, this ancient patriarch, the father of the Jews and the Arabs, did just what God had said. Look at this. And then Abraham took his wife and they parted. They departed to go to the land of Canaan. This is in the same area as, as modern Israel. That's where God took Abraham, now look what happens, and it's interesting. The Bible says, then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your descendants, these are the descendants of Isaac and Jacob. These are the Jews. These are the Israelites that God is talking particularly to now. God says, to your descendants, (coughs) I will give this land. What land? The land of Canaan, which is now much of the land of the secular state of Israel. God says to your descendants, Abraham, I will give this land. And there Abraham built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. Now, these are the texts that that dispensationalists, some Messianic Jews and certainly Hebrew Jews Hark back to when they say, God gave us this land. It is divinely given to us by the Lord. In fact, look at this. Talking again to Abraham. On that day, the Lord made a covenant or a promise with Abraham. And he said... To your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, and the land of the Canaanites, Kenzites, Calamites, Hittites, Pesarites, Raphites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gigoshites, and Jubasites. You want to have a look at that land, that's a lot of territory that God gave Abraham. And they say, hey, look, it's in the ancient Hebrew scriptures. God gave it to us. Now, some would say, what right has God got To give that land. Look at this. The earth is the... Whose? The earth is the Lord's. And everything in it. The world and all who live in it. If God chooses to give Abraham and Israel that land, you better believe he has a right to. But before you take that too far... Look at this, Genesis 17, verse 8. The whole land of Canaan, look at this carefully. This is God speaking to Abraham. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, look, I will give you as an, what? Everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. Look at that, says a Hebrew Jew. Look at that, says a dispensationalist. Argue with that. God, I saw it. Did you see those people being ejected from Gaza? I, hear, I heard them crying out, God gave us this land. How dare you soldiers come and evict us off from land that God gave us? This is why some dispensational evangelistic preachers in America are preaching that the hurricane came because they are saying that America has set itself up against God. They're saying that America forced Israel to withdraw from Gaza. But you know what? There's a condition here. The whole land of Canaan, where you're now an alien, I'll give As an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be what? Their God. I will give you the land. But I will be your God. The land is yours as long as I am your God. Now look at this. I'm going to take this even further. Exodus, we're still at the beginning of the Bible where God is making these promises. This time to Moses and the children of Israel, God on Mount Sinai, shaking the mountain like a reed. I'm supposed to go there and climb that mountain next year. I'm not sure whether I'm going to make it or not. But if I do go there and I do climb that mountain, it's going to be an awesome experience to stand where Moses stood and talk face to face with God. And God thunders down from the mountain to the entire children of Israel who had just been released from Egypt as slaves. He says, now if you obey me and fully, he says, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you'll be a treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, God says, I want you to make you Israel a special people. You go and study the Bible. God set Israel up with a specific task. And that was to take his love, not his vengeance and his wrath. The work of Israel was to take God's love to the world. He said, you'll be my special people. You'll be my special possession. I will give you this land, but take my love to the world. Well, Jesus, God goes on even further because he says, but if you or your sons turn away from me, and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you, and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land. I have given them and will reject this temple I have reconsecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword, and object of ridicule of the people. He says, if you do not obey me and keep my decrees, Israel, then I will cut you off from the land. Look at this further. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. God said, listen, Israel, I am going to give you this land. I give you this land and I am driving people out before you, not because you are worthy, but because they are unworthy, these people were involved in sexual immorality and idol worship of Baal and other pagan gods. And it upset God when he watched these people who were in ownership of Canaan before Israel took, and we're talking almost three and a half thousand years ago who are in ownership of this land, they're into sacrificing their children to pagan gods. They're into wanton sexual immorality. They're into all sorts of forms of wickedness. And God said, I'm driving them out of the land for you. But he gives a real warning here in the next verse. Because because he says, even the land was defiled by these people. So I punished it for its sin. And the look, he says, Israel, you're going in. But the land vomited out. These are graphic words. The land vomited out. These heathen pagan people. The ancient Canaanites worshipped demons. Now look what God says. Same passage. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you and the land became defiled. He's going on about it. Now look what he says. And if, this is to Israel now, And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Is that a warning? Is that a warning? When God says to Abraham, I will give you this land. When he says to Israel, I will give you this land and I will give it to you for everlasting. It is a conditional promise. God is saying, if you follow me, if you obey me, if you keep my commandments and my decrees, I will give you this land and you can have it forever. But he is clearly saying in the Bible, if you don't obey me, if you disobey disobey my decrees and go down another road, he says then you will defile the land and just as the land vomited out the people before you, it will vomit you out. Israel was given the land by God as long as they followed him. If they left him, then the land was no longer theirs. It would vomit them out. Now, did Israel follow God? Let's have a quick look. This is David's son Solomon, third king of Israel. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites, I can't believe this. Solomon, Bible says, wisest man that ever lived. I think he's one of the most foolish men who ever lived. He went from serving the high God of heaven, biblical fact, to sacrificing his children, his babies to this fire God, Moloch. And you can see in the picture a man doing just that. Dreadful. And you know, when Solomon went, the entire nation followed him into paganism. Look at this. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable fire god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable fire god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all these foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices. You better know what those sacrifices are. They're human sacrifices. They're their own children. To these pagan gods. Now I'm asking you, is Israel under Solomon defiling the land? And God said to Israel, if you defile the land, if you defile yourselves, if you defy and disobey me, God said, the land will vomit you out. Now, this is a very sad thing. But there you have outside of David and Saul a list of all the kings of Israel. He took me about two hours to do this. Go through and list them all on the left-hand side. Well, it's on your, yes, on the left-hand side. You have all the evil kid kings. Rehoboam, Jeroboam, Ahab, Jehoram, Ahaziah, Thali, who's a, who's a queen. Amaziah, Aziah, Ahaz, Manasseh, Amon, Jehoaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. All evil kings. You look at that list. Only one king in that list of evil kings came to God. Do you know who it was? Does anybody know who it was? Manasseh. The most evil king that Israel ever had was dragged off in captivity and came to his senses and followed God. But it is a litany of evil and wickedness as you read in the Bible what these kings did and what they led the people of Israel to do. Then you have the good kings, Abijah, Asa, who became a bad king. Jehoshaphat, Joash, who started off good and became bad. Joseph, Hezekiah, what a disappointment that king was. Lived most of his life for God and then went bad. And Josiah, you can see that there are only four kings. Five if you want to count David and six if you want to count Manasseh. In all of Israel's history who followed the true God of heaven. The rest were worshippers of pagan gods who even fell to the despicable level of sacrificing their children. And I want to tell you, in 605 BC, the land vomited Israel out. King Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian king, came along. He took Israel captive. God says in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the book of Daniel, that the reason they were taken captive was because of their prostitution to foreign gods. Israel was vomited out of their land. And they went into terrible captivity. And if you know Bible history, you'll know that, that it was at this time Israel was finally cured of their worship of pagan gods. When they were let go after 17 years of captivity, to my knowledge, Israel never worshipped a pagan god again. And so you ask yourself, a second chance God gives Israel. Did Israel now follow God? Well, God sent the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to Israel. This is 600 years after the captivity in Babylon. 600 years after they had learnt their lesson that that, uh, that, that to follow pagan gods will ensure that you get vomited from the land. God sends the Messiah, the Saviour of the world, to Israel. Did they learn their lesson? Were they now following God? Look at this. Then the chief priests... These are the pastoral leaders of uh, of Israel. These are, are the spiritual leaders of the nation. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and they plotted to arrest Jesus and in some sly way kill him. God sends the Messiah and how does Israel, wicked Israel, now respond? Bible says that they plotted to kill Jesus, did they? Jesus was put on a cross by these same men. And at the ninth hour, the Bible says, as Jesus was on the cross, he cried, "Eli, Eli, namasabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Now, let me tell you that I am very aware that I, Lloyd Groleman, am more culpable of putting Jesus on the cross than were those leaders, those spiritual leaders of Israel. I have no doubts at all that it was my sins that put Jesus up on the cross. And we're going to look at that next week when we look at blood on the throne. The most telling, the most powerful presentation of this series So don't for one minute think I'm being anti-Semitic here and blaming the Jews for Jesus' death because it was not Israel that put Christ on the cross. It was my sins and it was yours. It was the sins of the world. But the point I'm making here is that Israel had not come back to God. They had stopped worshipping heathen pagan gods but they had not come back. They had not come back. They were instrumental with us in putting Christ on the cross. And do you know that in AD 70, in the siege of Jerusalem, terrible siege where Titus, they say, when he broke through the walls of that city, he took all the men out and he crucified them and they said the cross has disappeared off into the distance over the horizon. Israel in AD 70 was again vomited out of the land. And they were vomited out of the land because as a nation they, look, God loved Israel. It was the apple of his eye. He deeply, and he still does, deeply, deeply loved the people of Israel. And, and you can see it through the prophets. Go and read the Old Testament prophets. If you haven't, a Bible, haven't got a Bible, get one on the way out. It's free. That's as long as you haven't got one. No cost. Go and read as God, working through his prophets, begged Israel to come back to him. He said, I am your husband. You are my unfaithful wife. You have prostituted yourself to foreign lovers. But he says, come back to me. I will forgive you. I love you. I want to give you this land. I want you to share my love to this broken down world. And time after time, Israel prostituted herself in pagan worship. And when she had finished prostituting herself in pagan worship, she then turned against God through tradition and silly regulations and laws that she had made up. Which gave the people of Israel and those surrounding them no chance to know a loving, gentle, sensitive, merciful God. And so Israel was vomited out again. There's an entire, there's an entire prophecy in the Bible found in Daniel 8 and 9 that speaks about this. And as Israel was vomited out of her land again, God chose The apostolic church, this is the church of the apostles, the church of the disciples, the men who had followed Jesus around. God then chose them as his vehicle to share his love to the world. No longer were Israel God's special people. Did he still love Israelis? You better believe it. Did he still love Jews? Yes, he died for them. Did he still want to save the people of Israel? Yes, he does. He does to this day. And there are many Christians who follow the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They have dedicated their lives to taking the story of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the great God of the universe, back to His own people, the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. If ever we've got reason to be thankful to the Jewish race, is that they gave us, through God, the Messiah. But as His special people, to share His love to the world, finally they were rejected. They weren't rejected for salvation. God just said, I can no longer work with this nation. And yet I want to tell you that it was Jews who were the most powerful missionaries in this early apostolic church. Jews. Peter was a Jew. Paul was a Jew. It was Paul. Paul is the reason we sit here this afternoon. Jewish apostle to the Gentiles. That's you and me. We have to this day much to thank the Jews Israel for for Jesus, for the apostles, Paul and Peter and James and John and Andrew and these mighty men of God who went to the far ends of the earth to share the love of Jesus Christ. But they were the vehicle for God now to share his love to a desperate world, not the nation of Israel. That's why Jesus says in Galatians 3.28, he says there is neither Jew nor Greek, Neither Jew nor Greek in this new church, neither slave nor free in this new church, is neither male nor female, this is radical stuff, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the new church that shares the love of Jesus Christ. The Jewish history went on. They suffered terribly through the years, through the Middle Ages, Arabs and Muslims alike, in fact the Christian church, I want to tell you, has as much to answer for persecution of the Jews as does any other group. And then of course last century we were faced with the horror of the Jewish Holocaust where over six million Jewish men, women and children were massacred. And I can stand up the front here and hang my head because German blood runs through my veins and it was my ancestors, some from my family who persecuted these poor people. Six million died in concentration camps, gassed, shot, starved and it is a dark blot on the history of humanity, perhaps outside the crucifixion of Jesus himself, which we are all responsible for. This, perhaps, is the darkest blot in the history of the world. In 1948, the secular Jewish state was born and there was much rejoicing from many, including the Israelites, the Israelis themselves. And as I look at it, the modern state... And we're running out of time. Of Israel exists because one, sympathy for the Holocaust. And you better believe there should be sympathy for the Holocaust. And if ever there was a people who needed a homeland, it was the Jews. The sympathy led for a desperate need for a Jewish homeland. We pray that what they suffered in World War II, they will never suffer again. And the modern state of Israel exists because of the support from the United States and much of the Western world. But it does leave us with the Palestinians. Who are the Palestinians? Well, I'm just going to spend a very short time on this and we'll bring this to a close. Abraham couldn't have a son by his wife Sarah and so he took his wife's handmaid, Hagar, And he slept with her and she bore him a son. They called him Ishmael. Ishmael is the father of the Arabs. Isaac, who came along 14 years after Ishmael, is the father of the Jews. And so you have Abraham who was the grandfather, the granddaddy of the lot. And God made a promise to Hagar and to Ishmael and to Abraham. He said, I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also. Because he, Abraham, he's your offspring. And so Ishmael became the father of the Arabs. Now I'm interested in this because look at what the Bible, this is what God says. Bible says the angel of the Lord, and you do a study that actually means Jesus, said to Hagar, you are now with child and you will have a son. You shall call his name Ishmael for the Lord has heard your misery she was very miserable Sarah was treating her very badly and I guess that's what happened when a man goes and sleeps with another woman God says he will be a wild donkey of a man his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers Now there's actually much that I admire about the Arabs and Arab culture but there is no doubt if you have a look at their history and I've had a good hard look at it, they have lived in hostility against each other and against their brothers since this time and still continue to do so today and if the Arabs are not fighting the Israelis, they're fighting each other or somebody else. They are men of war. They're a nation of war. They're warriors. In the 6th century, a man came along by the name of Muhammad. And he founded Islam and in less than a 100 years, there's an amazing story, most of the Arab world had become Muslim. These are the descendants of Ishmael, whose father was Abraham. They are Abraham's children. Now remember this, Arab Muslims around the world consider that much of the problems that the West faces with terrorism is a direct result of the Palestinian-Iraqi conflict not Iraq. So Muslims around the world, Arab Muslims around the world, they consider that it is the Palestinian-Israeli conflict that is the problem we face in this world today. Well, who are the Palestinians? Well, well, I tried to do a little bit of research on this and I have done my best to come up with the right answers and I pray that it is correct. The Palestinians, as far as I could see, are Arabs. Arabs. Most have immigrated to Palestine from other Arab countries and not necessarily in recent times. But the Palestinians are Arabs. Most are Muslim. They're followers of the Prophet Muhammad. They are part of this great Islamic movement that has swept the world. In fact, I believe that Islam is the fastest growing religion here in Australia today. Most are Muslims. But there are amongst the Palestinians some Who are Christians? And you just, uh, if you have a look at the Arab world, you see the Christian church at work in some places in the Arab world too. Palestinians claim the same territory as the Jews and they consider Jerusalem, particularly East Jerusalem, to be their capital. And they have been involved in uprisings of independence since 1948. Thousands and thousands have died as a result of these uprisings. And as of 2005, they are still stateless. They enjoy the support of the entire Arab Muslim world. Now that, to me, as I studied, is an encapsulation of who the Palestinians are. Look at this. The cause of Islam... And Palestine has become so entwined that it is difficult to distinguish one from the other. A Palestinian victory over Israel is seen by most of Islam to be central for peace for the world and the West. However, the West, particularly the United States of America, fueled somewhat by dispensationalist theology, considers the maintenance of a Jewish state as vital importance. And so you can see what a powder keg we have in the Middle East. Both believe the land was given to them by God. Both believe that they have a future in that land. But it seems that both cannot find the will or the desire to live together in that land. So what future does the Bible predict for the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? A conflict that involves America, Islam... In Israel, well firstly, I want to say that as I search the Bible, I see nothing in the Bible about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Nothing. No prophecies, no predictions, nothing. Neither the Jews, I believe, all the Palestinians, have a mandate to exclusive use of the land I want to tell you that God loves Palestinian Muslims, and that is a fact He sent his son Jesus Christ to die for them and when he sees their children and when I was when I was preparing this subject some of the pictures I saw on the internet as a father made me want to weep. They see their children dying in this uprising. God weeps. God cares. God reaches out to the Palestinians. But just as God loves the Palestinians and their children, God loves the Jews and the Israelis. They are all his people. God made Abraham. God made Ishmael. God made Isaac it was God who destined them both to be the fathers of great nations and it it makes God's heart weep when he sees the inhumanity of Israeli to Palestinian and Palestinian to Israeli and there is a cycle of blood and vengeance over there that only God himself can stop. God says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, and this is what the Palestinians and the Israelis need. He says, the fruit of the Spirit, or the fruit of following me, my children, he cries out to the Palestinians and the Israelis. My children, he cries out to us this afternoon. He says, the fruit of the Spirit, those who follow me have love and joy and peace. And patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such there is no law. Put them into a big pot and tip it over the Palestinians and the Israelis and you will have peace. Put that into a big pot and tip it over Australia and all crime and violence. We will have peace too. What does the Bible say about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? And you'll hear war and rumours of war. What's happening in Palestine and Israel? What's happening in the Arab world and the West? What's happening with terrorism? It's just a sign of the times that Jesus is going to come soon. The Bible says there'll be war and rumours of war. The Bible says... When people are saying peace and safety, I wish this wasn't true. It says destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. I do not believe that there is a chance in all this world that the Arabs and, and, and the Israelis, that the West and the Muslim world can find peace outside Jesus Christ. It's not possible. There's been too much blood between both groups. And peace will not come. They will claim that peace is on the horizon. Maybe they'll implement a Palestinian state. But outside Jesus Christ, they will not find peace. And they will not find the safety that they all long for so desperately. I'm going to say it again. Jesus loves Palestinian Muslims and Palestinian Christians, and Palestinian children, and Palestinian mullahs. Jesus loves them. I'll say it again, they are his people. He longs for them to have peace. He loves the Israelis. He loves the old rabbis. He loves the little Jewish children. He loves even the settlers who sometimes can be so hardline right-wingers. Jesus loves them. He wants peace and he, 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 he wants it for them all. But it seems to me that the only way we'll ever find peace in the Middle East and in many other places of the world is to see the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's only when Jesus comes in power and glory. The Bible says in First Thessalonians chapter four, verse sixteen and seventeen, then the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout. With the voice of the archangel, Revelation 6 says the sky recedes back like a scroll. And then it says all the mighty men, all the violent men, all the wealthy men, all those who do not follow Jesus head for the hills and cry for the rocks to come down on them. This is the end of the violence. I saw and I told you last week as I close. In fact, I've seen two internet pictures that will haunt me for the rest of my life. A Palestinian man carrying his little girl and she'd obviously been caught up in an attack of Israeli soldiers. Her left leg about here had been blown off. She had puncture holes in her lungs and blood on her forehead and I looked into her face and I saw my little daughter Danae. and it upset me and it upsets me now as I talk to you. And it upset God when he sees this injustice and this inhuman behaviour to even children. I saw a little Jewish baby. who had been caught in a Palestinian bomb and a poor little baby's head had been taken right off it. And when I saw it, it upset me. And when I see the violence in the Middle East, when I see the inhumanity, the satanic Behaviour of people to other people and brother to brother. When I see it in Australia and people are attacked in the street, when I see the violence and the crime and the injustice of the world and that's what we're seeing in Israel and Palestine, injustice. When I see it, my heart cries out, come, come Lord Jesus, come. Stop it and save us from ourselves. I believe that only Jesus can stop what we are seeing. I believe one day that those little children, the innocents that are caught up in this violence, will be resurrected by the Jewish Messiah who is the Messiah of the world. I believe he will bring them back to life and he will take them to a world. He promises it, John 14, to 3 in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you and if I go to prepare a place for you, he says, I'll come again and I will take you there that where I am, there you can be also. Now Jesus will come and he will resurrect these poor little innocent people who have suffered so badly and he'll take them to live with him Because in the end it seems to me that Jesus is the great peacemaker and for the world there is no other help. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we come before you this afternoon. What a horrendous world we live in. What terrible injustices, Lord, we do to each other. What terrible crimes we see being committed against other innocents. And yet, Lord, tonight as we close this meeting, we look to you in hope, you who are the great peacemaker, you who who promise love and gentleness. Please look down on us in mercy on this earth, on this broken down planet. Come back, I pray, God, and save us, save us from ourselves, from our violent, wanton ways. Lord, as we close this program in the quiet of this evening, I pray that you'll touch each heart with the gentleness that you offer, with the the love that can only come from you. And I pray, God, as we leave this place, we will have committed in our own lives to follow you, to walk in gentleness and peace with our brothers as you did, and to give a little love to a broken down world as only you can do through us. This is my prayer, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, thank you for listening so quietly this afternoon. I want to invite you back for what is without doubt, in my view, from both Christians.